And turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. No, it wasn't a misprint on the slide. It actually is Luke, not Mark. We're taking a little step away from our series on the Gospel of Mark this morning to look at Luke 10, 17 through 20. And this morning's message really serves as a, a charge to our elders and deacons. The new elders and deacons we just installed and those who've been serving uh, and as you'll see, I think the, the charge here is for all believers who serve in any capacity in Christ's church, which is all of us, right? All of us are called to, to serve. All of us are called to minister to others. And so there's a general application of this that I think uh, hits home with anyone who's seeking to be faithful to Christ. And yet, uh, I want to direct it specifically toward our elders and deacons this morning as you consider... Um, the, the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead in this role. And, uh, and for those of us who are already serving in that capacity, it's always good to be reminded. And so uh, if you would, out of reverence for God and his word, let's stand together as we read Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to your word this morning. Lord, help us to see what you would have us see. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Above all, we ask that you would help us to see Christ in all of his saving power and glory. And not just to see him, but to rejoice in him above all, that he would be the ground of our rejoicing. We ask it in his precious and holy name. Amen. Please be seated. So one of my heroes and one of the great gospel ministers of the 20th century is Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London for around 30 years. And Lloyd-Jones was a minister there in London at a crucial time in the life of England, at a time when theological liberalism had essentially taken hold of the church in England. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was, was there proclaiming historic Christian beliefs in an age when uh, those beliefs were very unpopular, very out of fashion, as a good Brit might say. And Lloyd-Jones was instrumental in developing uh, men who would follow after him, who would also champion those truths, men like J.I. Packer and John Stott. And Lloyd-Jones was incredibly fruitful in his ministry. Many people came to saving faith under his preaching ministry. Many people were mentored under Lord, Lloyd-Jones's leadership. And Westminster Chapel became a, a beacon of the gospel. It became a beacon of faithfulness to God's word at a time that was so important in the life of England. 
Lloyd-Jones' ministry was marked by prodigious output, in a sense. If you look, just looked at his life, he was constantly impacting others. He was constantly at work for the gospel. But Lloyd-Jones reached a point where his body could no longer sustain that. And there came a point where he could no longer actively engage in public ministry. And in the final weeks of his life, he was so weak that it took great effort for him to move from his armchair to his bed. And someone in those final weeks asked him how, after decades of fruitful ministry and extraordinary activity, how he was coping with such weakness and inactivity. And Lloyd-Jones' response was to quote Luke 10.20. Do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. For Lloyd-Jones, this verse was a guard around his heart to keep him from finding his satisfaction in ministry success. In quoting this, he was saying, I don't tie my joy to the external measurable aspects of ministry. Those things will come and go. They'll be up and down. They can and eventually will be taken from every one of us. Rather, Lloyd-Jones says, I tie my joy to the fact that I'm known and loved by God. Because that's something that could never, ever be taken from me. It can never be diminished by failing health. It can never be diminished by inactivity. Or any other limitation. To know Christ and to be known by Christ. He says, that's where I find my joy. And so after quoting Luke 10, 20, Lloyd-Jones added confidently, I am perfectly content. He understood that the source of his contentment could never, ever come from his own accomplishments. Could never, ever come from the things that you could measure externally. That contentment had to come from a deep, abiding joy in Christ. The deep abiding contentment in Christ. It had to come from a, a heart that marvels in God's grace to a sinner and stands amazed that one's name is written in heaven. And so this morning, as we prepare to install our new elders and deacons, I want to look to these verses in Luke 10 as a charge to our new officers, to our present officers or present elders and deacons and to us as a, as a whole congregation. The fact is that these, these verses do speak to all Christians, but there's a particular application, I think, to elders and deacons who've, who've either been serving or are just beginning to serve in those roles. Jesus has, his, his charge has direct application for those who invest heavily in the life of the church, who spend a lot of time thinking about the church's progress and, and mission and how things are going, and who may find themselves riding the up and down waves of emotion that can go with that. And this is, this is natural. This is good, right? The best elders and deacons are those who have a passion to see God's people cared for. They're those who, who have a passion to see sinners come to saving faith in Christ. They're those who, 
who love to see people turn from their sin and, and repent and find renewed joy in Christ. They're those who are willing to invest time into people, to invest their lives into people and into ministry opportunities. But all of this means that we who serve in these roles are subject to a danger, a danger of which Jesus warns us, a danger that our joy would be rooted more in our effectiveness in serving Christ than in Christ himself. And ironically, the only way to be an effective elder or deacon is to not root your joy in how effective you are as an elder or deacon. So, so let's turn our attention to Luke 10 and see what we learn here that helps us, whether you're uh, serving as an officer or serving in another capacity. I think all of us learn something about what makes for an effective and fruitful life of ministry. First, we see that Jesus sends out the 72 disciples, commissioning them with power and authority. So the, the story starts not in... Uh, verse 17, where we picked it up, the story starts in verse 1 of chapter 10. So let's go back and look at verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So Jesus Sends them out, 72. He sends them out ahead of him to preach two by two. And he sends them to go forth with his authority. He reminds them that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so not only does he send them out, but he says, as you're going out, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send even more workers out. Pray that you would not be the only ones. And yet he warns them that along the way, There will be challenges. They'll be going as sheep into the midst of wolves. They'll be going with very few provisions. He actually commands them to take few provisions along. That they would trust him to to provide along the way for their needs. And he kind of gives a mixed report of what they're to expect in terms of ministry success. They They will preach and some will receive that message. They will heal, and some will see in that and receive in that that the kingdom of God is drawing near. And they'll enter into other towns and do the same thing, and people will reject them for it. And so they go out expecting Jesus is sending us out with authority, but it's going to be hard. 
And when we get to verse 17, we get to see their response as they're coming back. So, so now they're reconnecting with Jesus, and this is their report of what they've experienced, and they're elated because they've actually seen some success. Right? Jesus has said, I'm sending you out with my authority, and they've seen that authority at work as spirits submit to them in Jesus' name. I mean, who wouldn't be excited to be a part of this? We see this in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is, this is an exciting time to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus' response tells them that what they're doing is part of something far greater than what they can see. It's far greater than just driving out a demon here or there, or healing a person here or there, or preaching to this town or that town. They are a part of something much greater, something he is doing that only he can do to overthrow the dominion of Satan himself. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus gives the, the bigger picture of what's going on. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And serpents and scorpions, symbolic of the things that accompany the evil one and his dominion. These disciples are participating in nothing less than the overthrow of Satan's dominion in the world. Jesus is the one who secures this through his death and resurrection. They're not doing it in their own power. It's not through their cunning, their words, their activity. But as they go forth in Jesus' name, with his authority, by the power of his spirit, they are participating in something much bigger than they can see. And elders and deacons, I think it's important for us to remember that there's something much bigger in the spiritual realm that is a part of of the things that we are engaged in. It may seem like like many of your tasks are, are mundane and ordinary things, and yet we should never lose sight of this glorious vision that when we are ministering to others, we are engaging in the overthrow of the dominion of Satan himself. When you're leading a person toward Christ-like maturity, you're, you're delivering a blow to Satan's grip on that person's life. When you intervene to help rescue a man or woman trapped in sin, you're, you're throwing a wrench in the enemy's plans. When you help provide for the poor, care for the hurting, you're, you're opening a door for God's grace to overcome evil. And when you intervene to try to save the marriage on the ropes, you're standing in the way of, of powers and principalities that want nothing more than to tear those two individuals apart. And you put yourself in the pathway of those powers and principalities. And that means, as I said earlier, you have a, a target on your back. You have a target on your back. You, my friends, will be in the enemy's crosshairs. He'll, he'll find where you are weak, and he will tempt you in that area. He will find ways to, to sow seeds of discouragement and anger and impatience. He will seek to fill you with pride 
over, over ministry success. And he will seek to fill you with despondency when things don't go well. But the one, the one we serve, the one you serve, has already pronounced Satan's fall. He's already pronounced it. And he died and rose again to secure it. And he sends us out with his own authority. And so if you are speaking the word of God, if you're ministering by the spirit of God, you're actually wielding an authority that is greater than that of Satan himself. As strong as he is, as powerful as he is, Christ has commanded you to go forth with an authority that is greater than that of the enemy. An authority is completely alien to us, but is rooted in his sufficient word, empowered by his Sovereign Spirit. We see, we see this in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is bookended by first a proclamation of Christ's authority. Right? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then the commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and then on the back end, and behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the one who, who holds all authority over heaven and earth says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I'm with you, I'm supporting you, I'm strengthening you, and you have my authority going with you as you serve. So those who share Christ and disciple others and counsel others with the word of God and by the spirit of God can expect to see God work, can expect to see God change and transform lives. Those who are ministers of mercy will get to see the work of God in the lives of people as his goodness expressed through your mercy overcomes evil. Nonetheless, as Jesus' disciples begin to experience some of this ministry success, he then turns around and says, don't rejoice in it. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, don't rejoice in your delegated authority. Don't rejoice in your ministry success. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rather, rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that you belong to me, that you've received my grace. Now, in saying this, is Jesus saying that his disciples then or, or we now should, should feel no sense of joy or happiness when we see God bless our, our efforts in ministering to others? No, that's not what he's saying. Right? If, you, if you love Christ and you love people, you cannot not be happy to see his work in the life of another person. What Jesus is saying is, do not make this the ground of your rejoicing. If you make this the ground of your rejoicing, then you will be easily sunk. Because the ground of your rejoicing must be in something much more solid and unchanging than this. Elders and deacons 
you're being called to a ministry in this church, which will sometimes be very exciting and sometimes be discouraging. And sometimes it will be accompanied with an abundance of fruit, and sometimes it'll feel like you're stuck in the mud. And sometimes your labors will be accompanied with words of appreciation and thanks, and sometimes your your labors will be seen by no one or recognized by no one but Christ himself. But as you seek to minister to the flock, I urge you to do so out of a heart that finds its joy in the simple but profound pleasure of knowing Christ and being known by Christ. I urge you to never lose your sense of wonder that you would be the recipient of grace. That's, That's the fuel that keeps us going. That's the fuel that keeps us from being sunk at those times when it feels like we're stuck in the mud. That's the fuel that keeps us motivated to to serve other people, even when it seems like we're not seeing the change or the progress that we would like. And the paradoxical truth is that the less you focus on ministry success and the more you rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven, it will actually make you more effective in ministering to others. And so what I want to do is is give you ten reasons, ten ways that this is true, that rejoicing in salvation will strengthen you as an elder or deacon. And again, the application is not narrowed just to elders and deacons, but to all of us who serve in any capacity. And the first is this, rejoicing in your salvation will overflow in sharing Christ with others. People talk about what they rejoice in. If you want to know what someone really loves, just listen to what, what do they talk about all the time. Those who rejoice in their salvation will overflow with a desire to talk about that, to share the wonders and glories of Christ with others. It will become an almost default response when someone begins to share their struggles and challenges. Rather than going to conventional wisdom, we say, how, how does this relate to the gospel? How does this relate to the person and work of Jesus? Because that in which we rejoice is that which we talk about and think about. And when you rejoice in your salvation, you want others to experience that same joy. Secondly, rejoicing in your salvation will enable you to serve with humility. It's it's hard to become puffed up with pride when you think regularly what it took to save you. That that each of us is a brand plucked from the fire by the merciful hand of our Savior. And that apart from him, we would be without hope in this world. We'd be lost. And that only by his grace and mercy are we who we are in Christ. It's very difficult to then to know that and then turn around and say, look what I've done for Jesus. Isn't that impressive? Isn't that amazing? Right? Because if we, if we get this and we rejoice in this, we know any fruit that comes from any service is the work of his hands ultimately. And enables us to be those who serve in the strength that God supplies so that in all things, God may receive the glory through Christ Jesus. So rejoicing 
and your salvation will overflow in sharing Christ with others, and it will enable you to serve with humility. Thirdly, rejoicing in salvation will help you guard doctrine for the right reason. So both elders and deacons, but in particular elders, are called to guard the purity of doctrine in the church. We're to care about what people are taught when they walk through these doors. We're to care that that God's truth is rightly interpreted and proclaimed. But rejoicing in our salvation will help us to guard that doctrine for the right reason. It's so easy in guarding doctrine to do so with kind of an air of, of contentiousness and arrogance and a sense of we're going to show you who's right. And yet when we begin by rejoicing in our salvation, and that is the basis of our thankfulness, then our motivation in guarding doctrine is completely different. It's a motivation that people would be able to see Christ in all of his glory. We would not want doctrinal error to obscure their view of the saving work of Christ or the beauty of Christ or an understanding of this God we serve and how he works in the world. We want that truth to be known, not so that we can prove others wrong, not so that we can become contentious about it, but so that people can be built up in the truth, built up ultimately in Christ and mature in him. Fourthly, rejoicing in your salvation will enable you to meet needs out of love and not a sense of duty. So the principle here is what we see earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 7. A woman comes and is washing Jesus' feet and anointing his feet with oil. And the Pharisees are really put off by this. And Jesus, in his response, essentially says this to them. The one who is forgiven much, loves much. The one who is forgiven much, loves much. In other words, when you know what you have been forgiven, it compels you to love others. And that that becomes the basis of effective service. Not a compulsory sense of duty, like, really, I don't want to do this, but i got to do this. People are expecting me to do this. But out of a sense of, I know what I've been forgiven. I know who I am and the love that I've received from Christ. How, how could I not want to serve others? And Peter builds this into his exhortation to elders in 1 Peter 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not under compulsion. Which means that if we try to recruit elders or deacons through a, kind of a, an approach that says, well, we just we really got to have more people. We need more people to serve. And we start kind of twisting people's arms to serve out of compulsion. We're actually <laughs> undermining their effectiveness. Because Peter says, elders, and I think the same principle applies to deacons, should not, should not serve under compulsion, but willingly God would have us serve willingly, out of a joyful spirit. I feel compelled to do this. 
want to do this. I want to do this. I don't feel like I've been guilted into it. This is something that I've been desiring to do. Fifthly, rejoicing in your salvation will make you more prayerful than busy. There is no shortage of opportunities to stay busy as an elder or deacon. There's always something coming up. There's always another opportunity, always another need. And many of those needs have to be met. But when we begin with a thankfulness for our salvation, when we recognize that who we are is by grace, and this same Savior is the head and Lord of the church, and he's making the church in his image by his grace, it compels us to say our first response should be to to be prayerful rather than just try to be busy, doing more things, starting more programs, trying to get, get more activity going. That's our that's kind of our default nature. I think maybe as Americans, maybe, you know, some, some personalities, that's our default nature. But this reminds us we, we have to begin with prayer. Prayer is what helps us discern what Jesus would have us do. Because we can't do everything. Right? And so it enables us to say, as we as we are evaluating between the good and the best, between all these good opportunities, but that which is central to the mission of the church, we have to begin with prayer. Otherwise, we will end up spinning our wheels, being busy about a lot of things, but perhaps missing the centrality of Christ's mission. Six, rejoicing in your salvation will make you more patient with disgruntled sheep. And I have to say, after five years, here's the good news. You don't have a lot of that in this church. <laughs> and so we've been blessed with a, just an incredible amount of unity and support. I know I, as a pastor, and I think our elders and deacons would say the same thing, feel supported and encouraged by this church. But the fact is, there are times in leadership where you're going to do things that people don't like. You're going to do things that people disagree with. And, and there's always going to be someone whose maybe approach or philosophy you're going to butt heads with. When we begin with thankfulness for our salvation, it enables us to say, if, if God is patient with me, if he has shown me this kind of grace, despite my utter rebellion against him, how can I not be patient with my brother or sister in Christ? How can I not labor patiently to work toward loving unity and trying to lead in a way that is this patient and kind. Seven, rejoicing in your salvation will strengthen you against discouragement. Discouragement will come. When we remember who we are in Christ, it keeps the discouragement from sinking us. It doesn't necessarily remove discouragement, but it guards us against being consumed with discouragement. It reminds us, even in those times when I feel discouraged, God is at work. 
He is at work in me, and he is at work in his church. So it guards us against the potentially devastating effects of discouragement. Number eight, rejoicing in your salvation will give you the freedom to step away if necessary. There are times in the life of elders and deacons where they say, because of other circumstances in my life, I need to step away from this. And here's how that guards us against that. Some of it is, is getting into the last point, but it enables us to say, Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is taking care of his church. My identity is not rooted in serving in this role. Rather, my identity is in who I am in Christ. And so, if there comes a time where for the sake of my family, for the sake of my own spiritual well-being, I need to step away, there's freedom to do that. Why? Because your identity is not in your role as an elder or deacon. Your identity is in Christ as a child of God. And, and that's, you know, you, you don't want elders and deacons who find their identity in being an elder or deacon. You don't want a pastor who finds his identity in being a pastor who needs it so much that can't trust God for the life and good of the church. Number nine, rejoicing in your salvation will make you want to keep the main things the main things. When you understand that the message of this book really comes down to God rescuing a sinful world through the person and work of Jesus Christ and the promise that he will one day consummate that completely in his return. It simplifies things. It helps us keep the main things the main things. It forces us to ask, are we making disciples around those truths? Are we caring for the hurting? Are we ministering to others? Are we committed to the ministry of the word and prayer? Are we committed to, to sending this mission, this message out into the world? And it enables us to, to evaluate the constant barrage of, of good things that are trying to co-opt the church for their purposes. I can't tell you the number of phone calls we receive at the church office of outside groups who know what God's plan is for our church. And it's to support their cause. But when we rejoice in our salvation and ponder our salvation and we think what God has done for us, we're simply called to declare and proclaim to the world. It simplifies things. It helps us keep the main things the main things. And it helps us to say no to all those things that are good but not essential to the life of the church. And then finally, rejoicing in your salvation will remind you that Jesus is Lord and head of the church. One of the best things an elder or deacon can know is that there is a Savior and you're not him. And I'm not him. But we're called to testify to him, to point others to him. And that frees us to know that he has this church in his hands. 
He is leading us. He loves this church far more than any of us ever could. He died for us. He promised to be with us. And if you've been here over the last two years, you've seen his hand of faithfulness. You've seen him carry us through some some discouraging things. And we can look back and say, even when we said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, he was faithful. He is the Lord and head of the church, which frees us as a plurality of elders and deacons to say, no one of us has to have all the answers. And never should we think we have the answers. But together, as a collective body, we're called to seek the one who does. And who's promised to lead us as we seek him. So church, this, this is what you want from your leaders. You don't want leaders who find their identity in their role as leaders. You want leaders who, who bank all their joy. Not on ministry success, not on increased numbers, not on launching new programs, but on who they are in Christ. The fact that their names are written in heaven. Because leaders who find their joy in all those other things can be sunk in a moment when those things go down. And a leader who's sunk is a leader who's not pointing others to Jesus. A leader who is who's burned out because they feel like they have to do more and more to gain the approval of men are not pointing other people to Jesus. But leaders who continually stand amazed that their names are written in heaven have a, have a gospel-centered drive to serve others. They aren't doing it because they have to. They're doing it because they get to. Because it's an amazing privilege. And their ministry to others drips for that reason with gospel savor. So elders and deacons, your, your first responsibility is to feed your souls on the things that will increase your joy in Christ and become fuel for joyful service to others. A little bit ago, we sang Amazing Grace, which, as you know, is written by John Newton. John Newton was a faithful pastor, spiritual mentor to William Wilberforce, the man who would bring an end to the slave trade in England. He was also a spiritual mentor to William Cooper, who wrote some of the most profound hymns that we have today. And, of course, Newton himself wrote many hymns, including Amazing Grace, which is perhaps the most famous song of all time. And in his ministry, he was faithful and he was fruitful by God's grace. But he never forgot that God had saved him while he was still a godless slave trader. He never lost that sense of, how could God be so merciful to me? I know who I was. I know what I was doing. I know the wicked, abominable practice that I was propagating. And God delivered me from it. He never lost that. And so his last recorded words were written down by a young pastor named William J. William J. went to see Newton in the final weeks of his life hoping that Newton would give him some wisdom. This man who had been so fruitful in his own life and ministry, William J. went thinking with a pencil and notepad, I'm going to take down everything I can from this godly man. 
And he only got one line. And the one line from Newton was this. Newton said, my memory is nearly gone. I remember this. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great savior. That's all that mattered in the end. The end of this long life. And all the impact he had made. All that really mattered was, I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. It's what fueled him during his busy and fruitful years of ministry. And in him, he, he wrote on Hebrews 12, verse 2. Newton wrote these lines. But since my Savior I have known, my rules are all reduced to one. To keep my Lord by faith in view this strength supplies and motives too. That last line is so important. Keeping the Lord and his grace in view supplied not just strength for ministry, but it provide motive for ministry. A motive that says, because I've been shown great mercy, I desire to, to show mercy to others. Because I have received great grace, I desire to proclaim that grace to others. Because I've been loved, I now love in response. Elders, deacons, brothers, sisters, church, may that be true of each of us as well. May we serve faithfully motivated by that idea. I'm a great sinner. I have a great Savior. May we die only confident in that one truth. Not looking back to accomplishments, not looking back to ministry success, looking only to the great saving work of our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled. You don't, you don't need us. And yet, you have chosen to work through us. You have chosen to carry out your mission through broken people like us. You can be jars of clay carrying a sacred message to a world that is just as lost and needy as we were. Father, I pray that you would fill us with joy in our salvation, fill us with humility, and fill us with a longing to serve others because of how we've been loved and served by you. Whether that is as elder or deacon or Sunday school teacher or children's church worker or mom or dad investing in children or those who, who care for the poor in our community those who reach out to neighbors. Lord, help all of us to serve out of a gospel-driven compulsion, out of a gospel-driven delight. And Father, we pray that you would take our, our work, which is often feeble, and that you would multiply it by your sovereign power and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.